Well, if you've uh, been with us at any point in the series, you know uh, that Jesus is in the midst of teaching his disciples about life in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, which Jesus insists is now uh, coming to bear on this reality in and through him. Uh, And and essentially what he's saying is that uh, I've given you a new identity. You are now um, salt and light in the world and you will have an increasingly transformed heart um, such that the kingdom of God uh, is now being unleashed uh, among you and it's even uh, being unleashed through you. You, uh, as a follower of Jesus, are now part of a, a new covenant and Jesus saying, and this is how we operate under a new covenant with a new identity. And so uh, the Sermon on the Mount, there's so many ways that we could approach it or define it, uh, but one of my favorite ways is that this is Jesus' manifesto for human flourishing in the new reality of God among us. And so uh, all of this uh, that Jesus is, is speaking and sharing would have been striking to its original audience. And in fact, it still is. Uh, about a year ago, I had the privilege of traveling to Israel um, and to, to see the places where Jesus kind of lived and taught and, and died and came back from the dead. And it was a very um, powerful experience. Um, but as we were there, we learned that there's actually millions of American uh, Christians who flood in and out of this small country every year for obvious reasons. And yet, uh, the, the modern day Israelites remain a largely unreached people group. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, well, these guys must be sick to death uh, of hearing uh, about Jesus while they're trying to be Jewish. And uh, it turns out that that's not the case. And we got to sit down one evening uh, on, on our balcony at our hotel. And it was really interesting. There was a series of attacks going on while we were there. You could actually hear like gunshots going off in the background as we're speaking with this guy on a, a giant hotel balcony overlooking the city. Um, and so you felt like the tension of the Middle East and just their need, um, desperate need for Jesus and for unity in, in, in him. And it's happening there in bits and pieces. But as we were talking uh, with this guy, he's one of the organizers for a group called Jews for Jesus. Um, and, and they're committed to telling their neighbors the truth that Jesus is, is their long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And um, so he said, while we were there, he was telling us, he said, hey, there's almost no Christians that live here in this country or that come here to work. And so no one ever really hears about Jesus despite millions of Christian tourists And there are virtually no missionaries, uh, very little outreach, almost nothing. And and then what he said really caught me off guard. He said, and the people here are actually really open to hearing about him. And, And so we asked him, okay, how? Like, how would you, like, if we were to come back to Israel or someone were to be sent as a missionary to Israel, how would you go about engaging Jewish Israelites with the truth and beauty of Jesus? And he said, he said, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, this is it. Nobody has anything like this. These are some of the most beautiful, shocking, evocative teachings that have ever been given by anyone, particularly on the topic of God. And and so he said, hey, this isn't just the best way to reach people in Israel. He said, this is actually the the best place to, the best way to reach people across the Middle East. So, so if the open door is there, what you would do is you, you would actually, he said, start with the Sermon on the Mount. 
And, and today's passage and just happens to be one of the most striking for people in those cultures and religious traditions. What Jesus spoke of thousands of years ago on a hillside in the ancient Near East is equally provocative and stirring uh, when spoken in a, a coffee shop in the modern Middle East. And, and that's due in part because Jesus is contrasting constantly uh, the discord between the Pharisees' uh, focus on outer righteousness and kind of refraining from doing evil and the kingdom heart, which is rooted in union with God, regeneration, and renewed life. And, and he's setting the two side by side in a really compelling way. And so with that as the backdrop, we pick up in chapter six, verse one. These are his words to his disciples. It says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not pray uh, like the hypocrites do, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then what happens next is he gives this amazing prayer to his disciples, which we call the Lord's Prayer. And we're actually going to devote a Sunday to this in the fall as part of a larger series there. So for the moment, we're going to skip down to the next section, verse 16. He continues. He says, And when you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. After giving us a compelling picture of the kingdom heart, Jesus turns his attention towards several uh, traps which threaten to pull us out of the sway of the kingdom among us. And we've been studying this over the last few weeks. The traps include wealth, worry, reputation, or really hypocrisy, and judging others. So if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that today we're actually covering the fourth and final trap which he speaks about, which can be described as the trap of reputation, or um, better described as hypocrisy. And he says all of these uh, have the potential to pull you uh, back into, out of the flow of the kingdom, so to speak, and, and back into the barren and empty righteousness of the Pharisees. 
And so when we allow these to um, pull us off track, not only do we become less effective in God's kingdom work, but the world notices as well. We talked last week about some of the accusations that the culture has made against the church. And of all of the accusations made, in my experience, the most common by far made against the church uh, with, with those who have had firsthand experience is that the church is hypocritical. Nothing in today's culture um, turns people off faster than someone they sensed is being two-faced or fake. And um, when there is this discord between our outer righteousness and our inner righteousness, the world actually notices. They can tell, they, they, can, they can smell it. So uh, in Jesus' day, uh, the practices and problems that he's talking about were different than the ones that we face today, but they're rooted in the same heart issue. So back in Jesus' day, uh, as the Israelites struggled to follow Yahweh in covenant faithfulness, uh, religious practices and really religious status became something to be sought after. It was central to their culture. And so what started as a positive impulse to follow God faithfully, uh, to be disciplined in their giving and their prayer and their fasting, and even to do them in a way that would encourage or stir up their neighbor to do the same thing. It was rooted in something good, but what happened is that it slowly slipped into a show. And, and this show was focused increasingly on the visible with a corresponding neglect of the inner heart. And uh, it, it's into this world that Jesus draws his disciples' attention to the disconnect by using the word hypocrites. Now, uh, the word hypocrite in the original Greek was actually hypocrates, and hypocrates was their word for a stage actor. Jesus is, uh, interest, interestingly enough, is the only person in the New Testament to use this term. And he uses it a lot. Uh, and what it would have evoked in the mind of its hearers were um, actors on a stage in a Roman amphitheater. And there were many um, Roman theaters that were built in and around Israel in this time um, by their oppressors. And in fact, one of these acting stadiums was built um, close to Nazareth where Jesus was raised um, and it was built during his lifetime. So in all likelihood, um, Jesus and his father Joseph being stonemasons probably would have worked on uh, one of these amphitheaters where um, Hippocrates would have acted on stage. And, and um, Hippocrates was a well-known part of the culture, uh, but here Jesus is using it in a unique way. He's saying, actually, the religious elite are, are Hippocrates. It, it, and it illustrated his point beautifully. In fact, Jesus illustrated the, the inner and outer disconnect so powerfully that he literally created the modern understanding of this term and, and brought it into being. That they're acting, Jesus says. Their religious life is just a show that they put on before others and it's taking them tragically off course. Everything they do, Jesus said, is done for the people to see. The garments they wear, 
the titles that they give themselves, the honored seats in the banquet halls, all of it. And when they gave their tithes and offerings, they were literally announcing it with trumpets, as in, like, attention, everyone, Rabbi Shammai is about to give an impressive gift. And everyone would kind of turn their attention to the offering that was being given. And, and it was that practice was starting to get out of hand. Uh, many of you have heard the phrase tooting your own horn as in, oh, he, he's just tooting his own horn, which really means, oh, he, he's just drawing attention to his own accomplishments. Well, that phrase is actually rooted in this practice. And so whether they were in the temple or on the street corner, they would go up to the, the, the trumpet blower and say, hey, hey, pay attention. Like I'm about to drop in a really big gift. And sure enough, and and everyone would see, oh, look what's happening. Look what he's doing. Look how devout he is. And when they prayed, they were standing in the synagogues or even out on the street corners for the purpose of being seen by others. And when they would fast as a form of spiritual discipline, um, and they would, uh, but what they would do is, is they would constantly disfigure their faces and, and they would dress in, in a certain way just to look at, as pitiful a, as they possibly could so that others walking by or encountering them throughout the day would know, oh, he, he wow, look at this guy. He, he's fasting. I think he did yesterday too. Wow, look at him. He, he is so devout. And Jesus came along and he says, you're, you're acting. This, this is all a, an act. This is a, a sham. And, and then he turns to his disciples and he says, be careful and not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. And it's worth pausing here for a moment to clarify what Jesus is after. Jesus is not saying that if you do something good and someone else sees that you've lost your reward. For example, if in a few minutes when we take communion, I were to drop a large uh, gift in our offering basket here and Ian were um, behind me and happened to see incidentally that I was dropping this large gift in there, that would not mean that somehow I had lost my reward, okay? So, so Ian cannot steal my reward from me, so to speak, by spying on me. And if he could, we would keep our eye on him because we know he's a sneaky guy, right? But Ian cannot steal my treasures in heaven, so to speak. Um, he can't do that. That's not possible. And that's not the point that Jesus is making. The point Jesus is making is saying, hey, watch the motive of your heart as you go about these things and be careful not to slip into doing them for the purpose of being seen by others. So in that same example, if I'm walking up to the communion table and, and, I, and Ian's next to me and I nudge him and say, hey, Ian, check it out. Look what I'm giving. Like, isn't that, oh man, it's amazing. Well, well, I'm doing that to, for the purpose of being seen by someone else. Or better yet, if I'm walking up to the communion table and, sudden, and, and, and subtly drop my check onto the ground and oh, oh, and Ian picked it up and oh my gosh, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, I must have dropped that. Oh, how much was that for? $400? 
do you, I mean, do you even have that much money? Like, this is amazing. This is a big day for me. Wow, I am, I am killing it. Right? It, I would be doing those things for the purpose of being seen by others. And those sorts of habits and practices, in reality, uh, what I'm looking for is not something that comes from God. In that moment, I'm actually looking for something that comes from people. And, And the stunning truth that Jesus is pointing to is that in those circumstances, as I look for something from people and their approval, God responds in accordance with our expectations. So when when we do religious acts purely for the purpose of being seen by others, God allows that to be our reward. Dallas Willard, author of The Divine Conspiracy, he says it this way. He says, when we want human approval and esteem and we do what we do for the sake of it, God courteously stands aside because by our wish, it does not concern him. That's not what we were after. We weren't primarily after something from God and God knows when and where he's genuinely wanted and when he's not. And so when we put on a show, even a religious show, doing positive things for the purpose of impressing others, God does not intrude on the party. He, he stands aside and he lets us have what we want. And our show, by the way, it, it usually works. In most cases, you wanted to be seen by people, especially in Jesus' day, you wanted to be seen by people and you were seen by people. Awesome, Jesus says. That was a successful mission. You, you accomplished what you were after. But the entire range of your operation lay completely within human competence from start to finish. It didn't need to involve God. God wasn't truly invited and therefore he didn't show up. This, Jesus says, is the hollow and empty righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee, of the religious actor on stage. And it's in this context that Jesus makes shocking statements about how the Pharisees won't enter the kingdom of heaven and about how if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness actually needs to surpass theirs. And in that day and age, they thought, well, that's impossible because they're the most devout. Uh, but they, they just looked devout on the outside. They had a certain appearance that they projected to the world. And the sad truth was uh, that as uh, the ego swells, the soul shrivels. That the more they focused on the outside appearance and obsessed over it, uh, the more their inner life with God was completely neglected. And this same uh, principle of ego and soul are alive and well in our day and age. It, It just manifests itself in different ways. 
We live in a different time and place and culture, thousands of years removed from the culture that Jesus is talking about. And in many ways, mainstream American culture is actually, I think, more like ancient Roman culture than it would have been like ancient Hebrew culture. We do not celebrate and lift up in our culture the religiously devout. Um, Far from it. And in a post-Christian culture, I think that's only going to become more and more true. We don't celebrate the devoutly religious the way that the ancient Hebrews did, but mainstream American culture is just as preoccupied with appearances. Americans do much of what they or we do for the sake of uh, being seen by others. Too often, uh, the career that I pursue and the spouse that I marry and the type of wedding ceremony that I put on and, and the title that I'm given and the size of the house that I live in and the car that I choose to drive are all uh, chosen for that reason. And I mean, a lot of what we choose isn't even practical. I mean, practically speaking, uh, many of us need to get from point A to point B. Practically speaking, we we do not need an Escalade with spin rims in order to do that. Do do you remember spin rims? They they came out when I was a teenager, so I desperately wanted them. I thought they were like the the coolest. But, But when you put spin rims on your car, literally what you were doing, it was the equivalent of hanging a sign outside of your car and said, hey, look at me and, and be in awe. That, that's what you're doing. There's absolutely nothing practical about it. And yet, there are so many things like that that we do. Why? So that you'll be seen on the street corners and people will hold you in higher respect, in higher esteem. We still want to be noticed by the passerby. We just use different tactics. And so instead of outward signs of religious devotion, we have cars and we have makeup, and we have dress up, and and we have the fashion industry, and we have bodybuilding, and we have mini mansions, and we have ridiculous cars that are absolutely non-functional, and we have Instagramming, and we have, yes, I will give to charity as long as you put my name in big letters across the top of the building. It, it, it's still happening, we're, we're doing the same thing. We're projecting an image to the world as a means of demanding the respect and attention of others. And all the while, we're dying on the inside. Americans, spiritually speaking, are a mess. And, and most of us, if we're honest, are, are miserable. In fact, most Americans um, aren't even sure if they have a soul anymore. That's not a reality that they're in touch with. Increasingly, people say, I don't know if I can believe that. Why? Because as the ego swells, the soul shrivels. And you have a soul But for most Americans, they have spent decades of time allowing it to shrivel into a a raisin. But check me out. Look how many followers I have. Look how big my house is. Look Look how many people think I'm attractive. Look at me. But inside, we are rotting at the core. 
Jesus says it this way. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. You look beautiful on the outside and everyone wants to be you, but inside you're a mess. We live in some sense in a nation full of stage actors inside and outside of the church. And we are spoiling at the core, suffocating under the weight of our own egos and our desperate struggle to protect our own egos. And the worst part of all is that in the midst of that suffocating oppression of the ego, Jesus comes along and he says, hey, guess what? They, they already have their reward. That was your reward, the temporary respect of people as you drove down the street with an extra loud exhaust pipe. That was it. That, that was your reward and it's gonna fade really fast and you're, it, you, you're risking reaching the end of your life with, with a God-rejecting, kingdom-rejecting raisin of a soul and then coming face-to-face -face with God. And, and explaining how you used your life. Why? why? Be, because they're all about the outside to the neglect of the inside. My wife and I are currently trying to buy uh, our first home and we should be approved uh, for our, our home loan within the next 48 hours and to really start that process. And we're really excited, but we also recognize that being a homeowner uh, is a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. Uh, and, and could you imagine if we bought a house sometime in the, in the coming months and um, all we ever did was focus on the outside of the home? We, we moved into the house, but all we ever worked on uh, was, was redoing, painting the outside and manicuring the lawn and putting in new trees and um, waxing the car and sweeping the driveway. And the outside looked immaculate, but all the while, we never took out the trash and we never did the laundry and we never updated the inside. I mean, in that situation, and some of you are in college and you're like, that's how I live anyway. That's what, what I do. <laughs> Amen. But, but if we did that, given enough time, our new neighbors would look at us and say, man, those guys are awesome. As we stood on the front line, perfectly manicured, big smile on our faces, waving to the neighbors. But the reality is that inside the house would be a mess it would become non-functional and it, it will college guys, if you do it long enough. I mean, if we never, and piles of rotting trash and dirt everywhere and laundry stacking up in the corner. And, and, and part of me feels like that, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. I, I think that's what, what we do sometimes. The more we obsess over outward appearance, the more the inside falls into neglect. And we have so many people in this culture who drive amazing cars and have awesome jobs and wear all the best clothes and appear wildly successful in the eyes of the world. And if we're honest, part of us really wishes we could be them and yet they're miserable. And, and inside, it, it, it's rotting. And, and the trash hasn't been taken out in, in months or, or years. And it's so, it, it, it's so rotted that they don't even wanna go inside anymore. 
and they come, they hold everyone at arm's length because if they get too, cl- if you get too close to me, you're, you're going you're gonna to smell that stench. And so we hold God at arm's length and, and, and we hold people at arm's length, all the while standing out front with a plastered smile on our faces, waving to the neighbors and pretending that everything is okay. And Jesus says, if you shut God out long enough and you shut people out long enough and, and you don't think about what's going on inside, you will become a whitewashed tomb. Jesus' words uh, speak powerfully against the egocentric and image-driven culture that we live in. Uh, but they don't just apply to the culture out there. Uh, I think he actually has something to say about the church as well. Because while out there, it might be um, Escalades and Instagram, um, in here we have our own dichotomy between inner and outer life. We have our own dichotomy between creed and action, between what we practice and what we preach. And there are obvious examples like the all too familiar story of the pastor um, constantly preaching faithfulness while um, having an affair. And, and, and I'm not talking about imperfection in, in leadership, I'm talking about stage acting. And, and some of you have been witness to those uh, stories. Some of you have been part of churches where that's happened and it's absolutely tragic. It repels people inside and outside the church from the reality of God. What is that? It's, it's, it's Hippocrates. But, but I think uh, more commonly, um, we have uh, subtle ways in which we hide from others or allow our awareness of others to dictate our life before God. Within the church, it can show up as the plastered smile that hides what's underneath and shields uh, how we truly are from the people around us. We shield the true state of our souls. It's the attitude that says, uh, God is good all the time, therefore I should be too. Have you ever felt that pressure or been in in a church environment where that was true? When in reality, um, we aren't okay and no one knows it. When this becomes the central church culture, um, then Sunday can literally become a stage production where everyone shows up and puts on their act and husband and wife are hanging by a thread and the kids know that the home life is a mess, uh, but it's time to go to church. So everyone plaster on the smile and pretend like everything is okay. And so you pile into the minivan and everyone a chance under their breath, the family motto, the Johnsons are good all the time, all the time, the Johnsons are good, right? And you show up in the church parking lot and you plaster on the smile, hey, how are you? I'm fantastic, couldn't be better. God is good all the time. When inside, it, that's not true. Raw honesty um, can, can actually become a source of discomfort in some church cultures. And, and in our defense, in some church cultures, anything less than a plastered smile is not welcome because of the discomfort of, wait, what, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing? We're in missional community. We're studying the Bible. Why are you opening up 
about how you're really feeling. And so the pressure can be to hold everyone at arm's length, projecting a mocked up version of ourself to those around us. And the line between a country club and church becomes tragically blurred. I think our awareness of others can show up in our worship in a number of different ways and that how and when and why we worship can become um, deeply affected uh, by our awareness of others or our um, desire to gain their approval or even our fear of the people around us. And so sometimes we um, maybe overexpress ourselves in worship because we think, oh, people are, are watching and and this is, this is the image that I want to project. But more often, I think we, we under express ourselves in worship be, because our awareness actually isn't on God and how we feel like reaching out to him in that moment. Our, our awareness is actually this way, side to side. And, and that can become completely stifling. It's our awareness of, well, what do I look like to the people uh, around me? And, and not, how is God calling me to respond right now? I think for some of us, this can show up in uh, our prayer lives, uh, especially when it comes to public prayer. And I'm deeply sympathetic to this because I'm an, an introvert. And when I first um, gave my life to Jesus, I had no idea. I like, didn't know what was in the Bible. I was terrified to pray and to pray out loud. Uh, and so I certainly understand the natural fear that's there. Um, and, and so for us, we, we, I think we still allow people awareness of others to affect the way that we pray. Um, we're not out on the street corners in, in the way that Israelites were, uh, kind of looking for the approval of others, but we can still allow our awareness of others to deeply affect the way that we pray. And it shows up in different ways. For some of us, um, we speak too much, right? We get in front of people and we just need to speak and speak and speak. And we, we use a lot of language that we would never use in private or, or in any other context except for public prayer. But we feel like, oh, I, I need to dress it up in this language and, and say these unique terms that are like from the King James Version or something. And I don't really know where that came from. And, and we can dress it up and use prayer as an opportunity to kind of show off our, our theology well, here's all this stuff that I know, or here's how passionate I am, but I need everyone around me to actually see that. I want to draw attention to myself in that way. And the flip side of that, where I more likely, more often found myself was, I can't pray in front of other people because my awareness of them would, would like crush my ability to pray. I was, I was terrified of it. Well, well why? 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 I mean, I could pray in private. Bless you. Um, I, I, I could pray in private, and yet the second I, I got into public, I can't do it. And, and, and there was all these different fears and anxiety. Why? Because of the way that people w will see me. And so there's different pressures in, in, in pushing us in, in different directions. Um, but in all of this, it can be rooted in our awareness of others to an exclusion of our awareness of God. And so if we obsess over what others think, it's actually going to suck some of the life out of um, our lives lived before God. And if we allow that process to complete itself, then we can slip into this place where our prayer or our giving or whatever is, is only for others to see. I'm only praying the words that I'm praying right now with an awareness of others in mind and what they might think and how this might affect them and, and how they might then respect me. And as soon as we slip into that place, Jesus says, hey, hey you already have your reward. Instead, 
Jesus offers an alternative. Rather than acting or hiding or putting up a front or looking for human approval or hiding due to human fear uh, or fear of what others think, Jesus says, meet God in the secret places and learn to pray fast and give before him alone. It's in the secret places that we learn to perform, so to speak, before God alone, before an audience of one, with our attention completely um, put on our Savior. And and having used then the secret places to cultivate the habit uh, of turning our awareness purely toward God, we we can now use that as a springboard to re-enter the public places with a sense of integrity between private and public so that we get to the point where the introduction of people or the removal of people does not affect the devotion of our heart. It doesn't affect the place of our awareness, our ability to meet with God. But he said, hey, start in the secret places. Cultivate it there, and then you can re-enter in such a way that you are finally free. And, and as we get caught up in this kingdom and our focus becomes increasingly on God and his love, our prayers will no longer be swayed by the audience, which means that some of us will actually pray less and others of us will actually pray much, much more because all of us are then being freed from what the people around us think. And, and, and there's no more fear and, and there's no more pressure or sense of trying to earn human approval or toot our own horn. And, and eventually we'll get so caught up in this kingdom that, that our, and, and our eyes will be so focused on Jesus that our right hand won't know what our left hand is doing because we won't be looking at our hands anymore. We, we won't be counting our good deeds and figuring out how to Instagram them. our focus will be on something else completely. We'll just be caught up in the kingdom of God among us and the rest of it will just become natural. It'll it'll be just like breathing, just like riding a bike, just like driving a car. Don't even have to think about it. That's what Jesus is after. He, He wants us to get to the point where the grip of human approval over our lives is finally broken. And we're finally free. And when we experience this freedom in the, in the love of God and his complete acceptance of us, our inner and outer lives finally come into a place of harmony. We no longer inflate the ego at the cost of the soul. Jesus, I, I, I love this wording, Jesus teaches us to be in prayer what we are in life and to be in life what we are in prayer. No more false images, no more hiding. We learn to live before God alone, free of all human judgment and human approval. We are at last integrated and whole. No more acting, no more hiding, we're free. And I'll end with this, a simple story to illustrate my, my point. Uh, a few weeks ago, we were in South Africa. Uh, Matt Karsh 
Tracy, um, his son Coulter and I on overlapping trips. And um, Coulter and Matt Karsh, who's not here. It's his birthday today, by the way. So if you know him, you should text him and, and bother him. Um, he couldn't be here. He's, he's serving as a chaplain in, in the military right now. Um, but the, the four of us went to South Africa on staggered trips and Matt Karsh and um, Coulter uh, went for a, a big conference. And uh, the conference, hundreds of people gathered around from different nations all over the world. The conference was being led um, by a, a man who's well-known internationally. Uh, and, and how he really became well-known is that he was kind of uh, one of the ground zero instigators for an event called the Toronto Blessing. So those of you who are familiar with like huge moves of the spirit of God in recent history, looking back over the last hundred years, this is right there near the top of the charts. And this guy w- w- was, was there, was kind of part of what instigated the movement. And so since then, he's kind of traveled all over the place, around the world, internationally known, ushering people into the presence of God and to prayer and just experience of God. And so he's leading this conference and during one of their um, prayer and and worship sessions, hundreds of people there, uh, he, he comes up to Coulter and says, hey, would you pray for me? And if that's me, um, I'm having a heart attack in that moment. I'm saying, no, 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 you pray for me because I'm about to die right now. Like, what what do you say? And the natural question that arises in your mind, what do you say in that moment? What do you say that this guy hasn't hasn't already heard? I mean, if if there's ever a time to to break out a a canned uh, prayer, mechanical, it's this time. If there's ever a time to be aware of your audience and, and to allow that to shape your prayer, I, I, I think it's that, it's that moment. And, and right in the middle of that, as I imagine those thoughts were naturally arising, um, Coulter said he just sensed God speaking to him right then and essentially just saying, it, it doesn't matter. Just, just, just focus on me and, and, and I'll tell you what to pray. I'll put it on your heart and mind. Forgive. The rest doesn't matter. You, you know, you, you don't need to, as I would have felt pressured, you don't need to act. You don't need to put up a front. You don't need to pull out a canned prayer. You don't need, no. For, for, forget about that stuff. And if you want to hear the rest of the story, you should talk to Coulter after the gathering. Uh, but, but the point is, that, that's what I want for our church. I I want a church full of a bunch of people who say it doesn't matter anymore. The the audience doesn't matter anymore. Human approval does not matter to me. There's no stage acting, no fake smile, no hypocrites, just an authentic life lived before God, rooted in intimacy with him, rooted in the secret places. And within this life, as we're drawn deeper into his love, something happens. Our ego is slowly drowned out in the love and acceptance of God. In fact, in the language, the vivid language of the scriptures, that ego is crucified alongside Jesus and put to death. And God says, that, that's it. That, that's where freedom is found. And, and as you cultivate that life, it's going to change your prayers and it's going to change your worship and it's going to change your, your fasting and, and it's going to lead into places of increasing authenticity with us on, on Sundays as we gather and slowly grow and build as a church plant and in missional communities 
And, and with friends and family member, authenticity is going to grow. Inner and, and outer life are, are going to come into increasing harmony with one another. And, and as we allow God to do that and to transform our lives in that way, starting in the inner, hidden, secret places, it, it's going to spill into, into the outer places. And, and it's going to spill outside of these walls and out into the city. And while hypocrisy, hypocrites, while that repels, authentic discipleship draws people in. It draws in the outsider. And so as we master this way of life, the city is gonna notice, and the outsider is gonna be noticed, and they're gonna be drawn in here, and then they're gonna be caught up in that kingdom. And, and they're going to have transformed lives. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread. The, the world, and American culture in particular, is starving for this expression of authenticity. Let's pray.